Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, Welcome to the LSE for this evening's hybrid event uh, hosted by the European Institute. Welcome to those who are here in person and, uh, and to the spectres who are attending online. Great to have you all here. This event is part of the European Institute series Beyond Eurocentrism. This series aims to explore how the shape and shaping of Europe needs to be rethought in a time of the exhaustion of Eurocentric points of view. My name is uh, Simon Glendinning, and I'm head of the European Institute and professor of European philosophy in the European Institute at the London School of Economics. Professor of European philosophy. Uh, My title, my own discipline, philosophy, has a Greek name. And in that name, it has a European memory. Part of what is memorialized right there in that idea of philosophy is an identity that is not exclusively European. One philosopher puts it by saying that the philosopher is the functionary of mankind, not a special agent of Europe. That outlook that has predominated in Western philosophy in one way or another is sometimes called a humanist universalism. It's, as it were, maximally inclusive in wanting to speak to the question of what it is to be a human being. European philosophy. But Europe calls itself to be, to be Europe. By calling itself to remain Greek and Christian, or Greek and biblical. It calls itself to appear in the memory of that legacy, in that legacy that it gives itself. And so there is a sort of tension inside Europe's aspiration to a certain kind of universality and its own heritage, which is necessarily particular, limited, historical. What will have been Europe's memory? That memorialized identity constructed through acts of remembrance. Well, I think it won't have been one. In some ways, it simply depends on where you are and who you are as to what remembering Europe remembers. If you're right inside Europe, on the inside of the inside, at the center of the center, that would be one thing. But how is Europe remembered in its periphery, in what's called its geographical periphery? Views from the margin of Europe. Or how is Europe remembered from outside Europe? The non-European memory of Europe. We'll be looking at both of those kinds of things this evening. But European memory will not have been one. In another sense, it's never a unity. The French poet and essayist Paul Valéry makes the point I have in mind here when he speaks of the Mediterranean basin 
as what he calls a veritable machine for making civilization. He says about this Mediterranean basin, it stands like a deep bowl in the most temperate region of the globe. It is especially favorable to navigation. It washes the coasts of three very different parts of the world. And as a result, it attracts many and very diverse races. It brings them into contact, into competition, concord, conflict. It also stirs them to exchanges of every kind. This basin has been for centuries, the scene of both mixture and differentiation among various families of the human race, each enriching the other with every kind of experience. This is how all that wealth came into being to which our culture, he means Europe's culture, owes practically everything. I may say that the Mediterranean has been a veritable machine for making civilization. He later calls it a factory, a European factory, a European factory, not because it's in Europe, but because it makes Europeans. It's not the only such machine for making Europeans, but in all cases, we can follow Valerie in thinking that everything European has always been bastard, hybrid, polyglot, never one. Memory fixes something in that dimension of numberless, anonymous spirit of all these spirits. The unruly line of ghosts that gets pinned down in European memory. And those ghosts can be friendly or fearful. And sometimes the same ghosts can be friendly and fearful, depending where you are or who you are. Friends or foes, ghosts, ghosts I speak with, or ghosts I want to lay, to, to exorcise, or both. Well, to explore these memory spectres haunting Europe, we have three speakers tonight speaking to three different kinds of European memory. We have, in, oh, in, in an order uh, here, Paris Kronakis. Paris will be our first speaker. And then after Paris will be James Mark in the middle there. And after James, Mina Danda at the end there. Um, I will introduce them both of them each um, individually as we go along, rather than try to do everything at once, but to tell you about our first speaker tonight, um, Dr. Paris Kronakis. He's a lecturer in modern Greek history at Royal Holloway University of London, where he teaches and researches on the history and memory of the modern Mediterranean. His work explores questions of transition from empire to nation state, bringing together the entangled histories of Jewish, Muslim, and Christian urban middle classes from the late Ottoman Empire to the Holocaust. There's some Valerian resonance in all that for sure. So uh, for starters, please welcome Paris Kronakis. Thank you very much to all of you physically present and also online, wherever uh, this event finds you. Thanks also to Simon and LSE's European Institute for uh, this uh, incredibly generous invitation. I'm honored and also very happy uh, to be here. 
So my uh, opening remarks will be uh, very brief. Um, moving from the margins of Europe to uh, the margins of the world, from Greece, that is, to Australia and New Zealand, I will be talking with a very heavy uh, Greek accent. So apologies for that, a sign of Europeanness uh, still uh, lingering in me. Uh, so my, my opening remarks will first cover the, uh, the, the relatively weak uh, European place of European memory in Greece uh, proper. The day of Europe itself usually passes unnoticed. Other important European memorial days, such as the Armistice Day or the Victory in Europe Day, even the Holocaust Remembrance Day, are usually overshadowed in present-day Greece by the memory of subsequent traumatic events that are specific in some ways uh, to Greek history. And when it comes to Armistice Day, I refer to the catastrophic Greco-Turkish War of 1919-1922 and the subsequent Greco-Turkish exchange of populations where more than half a million Muslims uh, crossed the Aegean to Turkey, uh, meeting uh, as, as, as they were journeying, 1.2 uh, million Ottoman Christian Greeks who were making the journey to, to Greece proper. So the, the, the memory of the First World War is in fact erased uh, by the memory of the, uh, what is now called in Greece the Asia Minor catastrophe. Uh, the same holds true to a great extent for the Second World War and the Holocaust because of the dominant mnemonic presence of the Greek civil war that um, uh, swept Greece uh, between 1946 and 1949. So these two incredibly traumatic moments in 20th century Greek history have come to define the mnemonic landscape of contemporary Greece and therefore tended to erase all other memories of war catastrophe and, and genocide that have increasingly uh, bound Europeans together um, over the course of the last uh, decades of the 20th century. So the Greek mnemonic landscape in this regard is fairly and squarely, one might argue, ethnocentric, right? And it tends to promote a national identity that is largely based on shared victimhood of Greeks being victims of structural uh, catastrophic powers. Within this mnemonic landscape, mentions of Europe are either marginal or self-serving at best. So any mentions of Europe aim for that reason to highlight the importance of classical Greece as a pillar of European civilization next to Christianity and to a lesser extent of the medieval Christian Orthodox Empire of Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire, which is rethought, reimagined as a kind of a European frontier against the Muslim East. Now, this should not come perhaps to you as a surprise, because to a very large extent, Greece's national identity relies, as those of you who have studied Greek history, modern Greek history, or have visited Greece, uh, Greece's national identity relies on foregrounding ancient and Byzantine Greece. And my name speaks to, to that. <laughs> um, so its importance, therefore, for Western Europe 
and the West in general, particularly during the Cold War. So in this sense, one might argue that Greece is amnesiac, that it has adopted a European and therefore largely Eurocentric perception of antiquity, how Europeans that is viewed classical antiquity and made it its own. So Greece is therefore a product of European imagination. And in turn, one might argue this colonialism of the mind, the fact that is that Europeans have colonized our imagination, has since the early 19th century conversely Hellenized Europe. That is, Greeks now conceive of Europe in turn as a fundamentally Greek creation. So if Greece is a product of uh, neoclassical and romantic Europe, Europe in the Greek imagination is a Greek product. Uh, for that reason, therefore, any critique of Eurocentrism is particularly painful precisely because it is understood as a direct affront, a direct attack to Greek national identity itself, to our own sense of self, as descendants, as, as, as arch-Europeans, uber-Europeans, because of our classical uh, heritage. So as is evident, therefore, from the above, European memory remains persistently Eurocentric in Greece. And therefore, any critique of Eurocentrism or of celebratory and self-congratulatory perceptions of Europe as Christian, classical, civilized, and the like are deemed irrelevant and for that reason dismissed. Uh, for that reason, therefore, post-colonial critiques of Eurocentrism are discredited because they do not concern us, by us meaning Greeks, uh, given Greece's non-colonial past. So in this regard, for example, the very presence of a very large Greek diaspora in numerous colonial environments from British rule Egypt to apartheid South Africa is systematically overlooked. Uh, meanwhile, the more recent emphasis when it comes to the European uh, mnemonic and memorial landscape, the more recent emphasis on the Holocaust and, uh, and on Europe's duty of memory is sidestepped since the Holocaust is treated as, in Greece, a purely German-Jewish affair, despite the fact that Greece has lost almost 90% of its Jewish population. So given Greece's also early entry to the European Union in 1980, Holocaust of Remembrance, or better, a particularly normative and didactic official version of it, was not a prerequisite for EU accession, and so contrary to say Poland, Czechoslovakia or Hungary of the 1990s, Christian Greece escaped in a way unscathed and was not forced to come into terms to reckon the darkest aspects of its own past. And in doing so, in performing that is, fulfilling this duty of memory vis-a-vis -vis the murdered Jews of Europe, qualify as an appropriately European country. Moreover, the Holocaust as a foundational European event, as a pillar of our modern mnemonic landscape, generates in Greece feelings of victim competition and hence is viewed as a threat to Greece's self-image as a suffering nation. However, during the decade-long Greek crisis of the 2010s, the austerity policies imposed by the European Union turned those darkest aspects of Europe's past, and especially the Holocaust, into a rich figurative resource, generating the formation of agonistic, 
anti-austerity and anti-EU radical political identities, both to the left and to the right of the political spectrum. So Europe suddenly became important and European memory uh, was politicized, um, was, was turned, became a means to forge very strong and radical identities that tore the country uh, in, in two. So in many pro-Euro and pro-European Union rallies in Athens, the slogan, we are staying in Europe, menum Evropi, uh, was frequently used. Yet, conversely, in many anti-Euro, anti-austerity rallies, in memes and cartoons circulating on the internet and in other social media, this slogan, the slogan that is, we are staying in Europe, was turned into its head and it was therefore depicted, as you see on the slide here, on the top of the very gates of Auschwitz. Similarly, prominent academics turned politicians from the radical left have argued that neoliberal policies had transformed Greece into a laboratory of destruction and Greeks and turned Greeks made Greeks into the new Jews of Europe. Then again, Cartoons in the newspaper of the radical uh, leftist party of Syriza depicted the German finance minister, then uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, as a Nazi official masterminding the extermination of the Greeks. And in fact, even anti-austerity grassroots movements, such as the much celebrated group against the imposition of highway tolls, the so-called then Plirono movement, I am not paying movement, uh, took inspiration from visits actually to the concentration camps. So in this case, Europe's haunted past was therefore pushed center stage. Its murdered Jews stood as the ultimate victim illustrating the ongoing plight of the Greeks. And this self-victimizing discourse was built around the figure of the European Jew who was now not just Europe's other within, but rather the other self that non-Jewish Greeks feared they were fast becoming. And this is one way that European memory um, became a, a political tool informing in some ways anti-EU and for some anti-European political identities on the ground. Now, I would like to move from Greece to New Zealand and explore some other, not just politicized, but actually weaponized uh, uses of the European past. And I would therefore like to close my opening remarks by attending to the global circulation of certain narratives of that European past. And in doing so, I'm pointing to the need of thinking the question of European remembrance actually beyond Europe in broader cross-continental contexts or else I would like to go beyond a Eurocentric discussion of European memory cultures, particularly in their most extreme form. So in our contemporary globalized and wide world, narratives of certain European pasts, and funnily enough, of some rather obscure ones, travel far more widely than ever before, reaching audiences way beyond the contours of the national or European community, these narratives seek to build or delineate. Such narratives are put into uses we could rarely fathom and can provide a vocabulary to articulate and then commit the most abhorrent acts of violence. So that is the power of European memory, actually. I'm specifically referring here to Brenton Tarrant, the Australian-born 
white supremacists who on the 15th of March 2019 shot 50 Muslims in cold blood inside the New Zealand mosque. As some of you may recall, Tarrant turned one of his weapons into a text, a virtual historical narrative of Christian European and in particular Southeast European resistance against the Muslim Ottoman Turks by writing on his uh, assault rifle the words Lepanto 1571, that is the sea battle which marked the end of Ottoman dominance in the Mediterranean, Turk Eater in transliterated Greek, a reference to Nikitaras the Turk Eater or Turkophagos, a Greek revolutionary figure from the 1820s. And then again, Tour 732, the town in central France where the Kingdom of Franks defeated Al Andalus Arabs, halting their advance in Europe. And finally, John Cuniadi, the Hungarian general and governor of Transylvania who defeated the Ottomans twice in 1441 and again in 1442 and stalled their advance in Central Europe. Now, as far as we know, Tarant had no obvious Greek or other Balkan, let alone Western European roots. However, in the most important moment of his life, he chose to imagine himself precisely as a Southeastern European warlord, becoming a 21st, 21st century Turk eater, John Cuniadi, or both. Greek and other Balkan nationalist discourses with specific European resonances, the defense of Christian Europe, that is, masqueraded as history and freely circulated in the web, furnishing Tarrant with a lethal, furnished Tarrant with a lethal vocabulary to express his hatred. Words then turned into acts and all hell broke loose. So how are we then to conclude as Greeks, Southeast Europeans, or Europeans at large to deal with all of this? Our gut reaction is perhaps to think that whatever happened has nothing to do with us. This is in fact how many Greek sites, and we can return to that in our discussion, treated Tarrant and his embracing of the legacy of Nikitaras, the Turk eater. The writings on the gun were just a curiosity. At best, a telling sign of Tarrant's deranged mind. Some other Greeks were slightly disturbed, seeing their history distorted and their worthy deeds of a national hero perverted. I, however, back then, could not take the word Turkophagos, Turk eater, out of my mind. I felt ashamed and to some extent responsible. For let us not fool ourselves here. Tarrant inhabits the same kind of universe many national and Eurocentric histories helped create. So austerity Greece and Christchurch in New Zealand should not be definitely equated. If I therefore bring these cases together, it is to draw attention to the vernacular or profane uses some Eurocentric narratives, some acts of remembrance that is, but also some other, other narratives critical of Eurocentrism can be put into use both at the margins of Europe, in Greece that is proper, as well as way beyond it in New Zealand. Thank you. Very interesting to hear uh, Greece represented there as both at the margins of Europe and the origin. Very <laughs> peculiar uh, couple, um, almost impossible, but there it is. Um, and I, I was talking to Paris, that is a superb name, uh, talking to Paris earlier about um, uh, this uh, Greek origin 
of Europe coming in a certain way from outside Europe, because when uh, Greeks named or the Hellenics named some place Europa, it wasn't where they were. It was over there. It was beyond on the on the horizon. So uh, it, it, it is peripheral, as it were, to Greece from the beginning, um, but also comes to be the origin, an extraordinary setup. Thanks very much. And ne our next speaker is James Mark. And James is a professor of history at the University of Exeter. And he's published extensively, both on questions of Eastern Europe and memory, and writing the region's history in the context of global empires and their ends. On memory, his best known work is The Unfinished Revolution, Making Sense of the Communist Past in Central Eastern Europe. And he's also recently co-edited a collection called The Global Crisis in Memory, Populism, Decolonization, and How We Remember in the 21st Century. Uh, please give a warm welcome to James Mark. Okay, well, again, um, as Paris said, um, thank you very much to Simon and to the European Institute for inviting us to talk on these themes. Um, and also hello to um, everybody who is um, online as well as everybody in the room. I, I'm really glad Paris went first because you've introduced lots of the themes that I wanted to talk about in the context of Central Eastern um, Europe. And it's amazing actually how many similarities there are, but also really interesting contrasts as well, the kind of non-colonial pasts, externalization of Holocaust memory rejections of post-colonialism, critiques of Eurocentrism, all these sort of things are, are, are really familiar. I would like to start with the observation that the kind of pan-European memory culture that really emerges powerfully and gets pushed by the European Union as it emerges, founded in 1993, um, is a very Eurocentric one. Um, it grew at the confluence of a number of phenomena. First, of course, the formation of the European Union itself and the desire to find stories to make sense of a uniting Europe and to overcome the divisions of the Cold War. Second, the rise of, of Holocaust memory, which came from many places. It came from within Europe, yes, from you know, particularly a Western European younger generation. But if we're decentering European memory, it also came out of, um, um, out of, the, you know, uh, out of the production of, the Holo of Holocaust memory in the United States. Um, and also out of civil rights memory, which often had connected itself to the persecution of Jews. But in its form in the 1990s, as it was used by the European Union, um, it, was in, it, it was grasped as a negative foundation myth. That is a collective experience of violence which left few parts of the continent untouched and which initially appeared to offer a story of never again that might unite East and West. The third point about this era I would like to make is that it was shaped by the marginalization of anti-colonial politics and a resurgent right, which certainly since the mid 1970s has increasingly marginalized um, colonial, anti-colonial approaches to the past. So this is an era when I would call anti-anti-colonial politics dominates. Thus this foundation memory for a nascent EU in the early 1990s was built around a Eurocentric version of the Holocaust. Little attention was paid to the connections between the Holocaust and the violence of a colonial project outside Europe. It also, as many have argued, provided a so-called screen memory behind which to actually downplay um, questions of colonial 
violence, or indeed became used to justify Western interventionism in Africa, in the Balkans, um, and eventually in Iraq. The second point I want to make today is that the expansion of the European Union to Central Eastern Europe um, over the 1990s and then officially in the 2000s um, reinforced these dominant Eurocentric forms of memory. Before, before 1989 in, communist, in the communist era in Eastern Europe, anti-colonial cultures had connected the suffering of Eastern Europeans under Tsarist or German empire, say before the First World War, um, or later under Nazi occupation during the Second World War, with colonial violence, with suffering in the global South. There was a collective experience of suffering and liberation from empire. Although it's important to say that the communists never picked out the Holocaust for any particular special remembrance as part of that, um, as part of that memory culture. Indeed, it's striking when, and when leaders from, um, from the global south, from India and so on, come to Eastern Europe and say, you've had this experience of violence, can we talk about it? Um, the Jewish story is always pushed to one side. But with the collapse of communism, this anti-colonial memory that connected South and East increasingly became seen as an inauthentic, legitimating device for dictatorship, nothing really more, and became really fundamentally discredited with the collapse of communism. Rather, after 89, anti-communists in particular, the more virulent anti-communists, often talked about their countries as post-colonial, as attempting to build a new national culture free from former Soviet imperial influence. Indeed, whereas the European community or EU as it became was a landing pad for Western Europeans who had lost empires and wanted to maintain global influence in various ways, for Eastern Europeans joining the EU and indeed NATO after the Cold War, this was a way, this was understood as a way of making secure their futures after an escape from colonial domination. So stories of the suffering of nations under communism, of Poles, Estonians, Romanians, and so on, were central to this memory culture. And as Eastern European countries joined the European Union officially in the 2000s, they didn't challenge this idea of a unitary European memory. It's quite different from Greece in this respect. They took the idea very, very seriously. Rather, that rather victim groups and their political supporters campaigned for a collective continent-wide memory in which their victimhood was included in common remembrance alongside the Holocaust. Yet this post-colonialism was, I would call, provincial. It did not reach beyond Europe, did not consider its relationship to African, Asian, or other forms of colonial suffering or liberation. Rather, this was a, reaction, uh, a re rejection of an Oriental past, a capture by the East, Bolshevism understood as something Eastern, not European, and a return to a white civilized West. Questions of colonial violence and slavery beyond Europe therefore remain for the most part irrelevant to European history and memory when taken from this perspective. Eastern European national histories of suffering under empires within Europe and supposed lack of complicity with colonialism outside Europe, and this connects with Greece very well as well, this, you know, we didn't have colonial pasts, also provided an alibi for EU elites from Western Europe who did not want to place colonial violence at the center of European memory. So one example, the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, at the African Union summit in February 2020 in Addis Ababa, uses the Eastern expansion to present the question of colonization as marginal to Europe. He states, 21 EU states never had colonies. 
It is therefore actually perhaps not surprising that over the last five years, many scholars of the region, myself included, have started exploring Eastern Europe's much more complex and surprising relationship to, or indeed complicity with, questions of global colonialism and white supremacy. And I think talking to Paris before this, Greece is very different. Greek historians aren't actually questioning these mythologies, but in Eastern Europe in particular, Poland, I would say, is really a real center for this, for starting to ask these kinds of questions. So of course, there's been, there's, there's been major challenges to this kind of Eurocentrism in the 2010s, and movements for racial justice, such as Black Lives Matter, have placed race and colonialism at the center of remembrance, and have connected it to aspects of the European project and its relationship to a broader world, to Africa and so on, that still resonates in the present, the questions of racial inequality within Europe in ways that threaten this kind of Eurocentric memory culture. And its influence has been felt very strongly within national debates within certain countries. So within Britain, obviously with you know, Edward Colston in Bristol and so on, um, in France, in Belgium, and to a certain extent in Germany, although resistance has been very strong there. Um, but its impact on the level of the European Union on the transnational level has been much weaker. It hasn't been absent. Um, Black French MEPs have been at the forefront of trying to push the new forms of European uh, sort of decolonized or less Eurocentric forms of European memory that bring in the story of colonialism into um, the mainstream of the narrative, but they haven't been as strong. But in Eastern Europe, the rise of populist politics over this decade um, has accelerated a much more public, vocalized and racialized resistance to such challenges to a Eurocentric memory culture. The tearing down of statues such as Colston's in Bristol is commonly presented as a destructive Western liberal hypersensitivity to race and colonialism, which might best be ignored or even fought against, um, but we, is, a, is ultimately irrelevant to a region that didn't hold colonies um, itself. Indeed, also these sort of shocking images, um, Black Lives Matter is presented as a new form of totalitarian ideology. And you see here this, um, this, um, this image of, um, uh, um, of uh, a cliched black figure, Afro figure from um, the 1960s remade as Adolf Hitler. Image, these kind of cliched images of black liberation are stripped of anti-colonial meaning and rather become colonial like Hitler, like Stalin. New alien racial ideologies have become the totalitarian force looking to destroy the essentially anti-colonial European um, nation. So in its more extreme forms, it's the racialized narrative of white defense, only possible in the region of Europe, which did not commit the violent sins of imperialism and overseas, does not have to be consumed, according to them, by questions of white Western guilt, and therefore can defend the kind of white Western civilization in the way that Western Europeans and North Americans no longer can. And indeed, if we're looking from without, we can look at the ways in which and populists from across the world, from Trump to Bolsonaro to all sorts of people have, have idealized um, Eastern Europe falsely as a kind of last white region of defense in the world. So this is a much broader transnational circulation. But I do want to say this is, this is not the, you can also see this kind of resistance to Western liberal ideologies here. This is a march, we will not be a colony in Budapest in 2012. But this is not the only reaction, right? So there are new spaces opening up to critique the European silences around European memory from a Central Eastern European perspective. And I wanted just to give two examples here. 
Firstly, I think Black Lives Matters opened up important spaces, particularly for Roma communities, to kind of rethink their identity, to rethink their marginal role and the role that history played in the articulation of identity. So you see here, um, very soon in, in the summer of 2020, at the same time, you had a whole range of protests across the region in Budapest, Bucharest, and Sofia. This one is from Sofia. Um, um, Roman, uh, Roma protesters, you know, taking the language of Black Lives Matters. You have this graffiti on Flinker's grave in Slovakia. He was sort of cleric, clerical right winger who, uh, and the guards that were named after him were responsible for the Holocaust in Slovakia. So this again is kind of a, a um, this, is, this is the use of the, of, of the Black Lives Matter idea, remade for the region. But to put it simply, and I don't have time to go into it in depth, there is a move away in Roma memory culture from trying to place the Roma experience of exclusion and genocide in the context of a Eurocentric Holocaust memory that I outlined above, and towards thinking about the Roma experience in the much broader context of global racism and slavery. And this has been particularly observable in Romania, where activists often supported from the US are opening up important questions about Roma slavery, which is a topic very little known about, which lasted in Romania, in um, or what became Romania, Moldavia, and Wallachia up until the 1840s and 1850s. And you see um, um, this, this, this advertisement from an earlier period on the right. A second shift has been the marginal opening up of debate over the region's relationship with race, and to put it simply, a white Western order. One saw this in, re in the regional reaction to Princeton University's announcement that it would remove President Woodrow Wilson's name from the Institution's School of Public and International Affairs due to his racist past. And of course, this is a real challenge in some countries in Central Eastern Europe, particularly in Czechoslovakia and Poland, where Wilson is a figure who is absolutely central um, as, the, you know, as the key supporter of the self-determination of those nations after World War one and has occupied you know absolutely key position as a kind of heroic figure within nationalist mythologies so of course the main reaction again was to reject this supposedly excessive recourse to race to pull down heroic western figures why is the west doing this okay but in some places most notably in poland there was a discussion on the left around whether wilson should actually be dethroned to and national memory did need to be decolonized. And so there was a debate opened up about the complicity between the rise of the Eastern European nation and its relationship to a white Western order. However, I would say this remains a reasonably marginal position. So the last point I want to come to today is really the reinvigoration and remaking of these anti-colonial discourses in the context of Russia's war um, uh, on Ukraine. A critique of the limitations of the cultural, of this kind of post-colonial um, rejection of Soviet imperial culture of the 1990s has really, really accelerated. Um, and you can see just, this is in the last few weeks. This was last week in Odessa, of course, founded by Greeks. Um, this, you know, that's why Catherine the Great named it Odessa. Um, uh, this is, so, so it seems to be decided, I'm not sure it's completely sure, it seems to be decided that Catherine the Great statue will be taken down in Odessa. And there's been the acceleration in Poland, particularly in small Polish towns, 
um, of taking down these um, Soviet liberation monuments from 1945. These were often, you know, kind of ambiguous monuments, right? Because on one hand, they did represent the liberation from fascism. On the other hand, they signaled the beginnings of, of the domination of the Soviet Union and of communism. So therefore, this ambiguity meant many stayed, but suddenly you have this acceleration of taking them um, taking them down again. I've also noticed that Modi in India has accelerated the taking down of Lenin statues there as well, and that's maybe a connection we can think about. The, um, so we also see this in the acceleration of the take up of Ukrainian or Kazakh as Russian language becomes seen more and more as a kind of imperial form. The question of delayed um, cultural decolonization now necessarily accelerated over a generation after the end of Soviet imperial role, has once again raised questions of how far this is a provincial um, anti-colonialism, how much the struggle for liberation from Russian orbit is just about a return to a white West, and how much it should be imagined as part of much broader struggles for liberation across the world. Very last point, on the Russian side, by contrast, there has been since 2014, that is the occupation of Crimea, an attempt to present Ukrainian nationalism as historically linked to fascist Europeanness, and with it a return to the anti-fascist, indeed anti-colonial discourses of the Soviet period, that Moscow represents the great anti-NATO, anti-colonial alternative to the West. And this nostalgia for Soviet anti-colonialism has been revived in attempts to build broader alliances in the global South, in Africa, and so on. So just as one example, in 2018, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov um, visits Luanda to open um, a statue that is, has been commissioned to the kind of liberation fighters, Angolans, Soviets, Cubans, and so on. And there's been a whole acceleration and rediscovery of this period of Soviets as supporting African decolonization, for example, as part of it. And it's part of a much broader cultural front beyond Europe, trying to, um, um, trying to recover this um, Soviet anti-colonial past. So therefore, in the last, I would say in the last, in the last few years, we've seen this kind of re-emergence of two forms of anti-colonialism that build on very different aspects of the region's past. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, uh, James. Um, two paradoxical relations already set up for us. Uh, Paris talking about the periphery and origin. James talking about the post-colonial and European, post-colonial but parochial, um, drawing in uh, a unitary European memory in which their victimhood did not draw them towards sympathy or identification with other colonized people, peoples colonized by Europeans, but represented themselves as returning to the European home. Post-colonial, yes, but liberated from capture by the East and a return to the West. Extraordinary different story. I suspect we might not be finished with paradoxes as we turn to our final speaker, uh, Mina Danda. Mina is Professor of Philosophy and Cultural Politics and leads a research group, Language, Power and Society. Her research focuses on understanding injustices, prejudices and misrepresentations suffered by powerless groups through which she pursues transdisciplinary studies specifically connecting caste, 
class, gender, and race. Mina is interested in social and political philosophy, ethics, cultural politics, identity, feminist philosophy, theorists of anti-racism and anti-casteism, and also I know has some things to say about contemporary India. So leave it now to Mina. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, James and Harris for your very, very integrating thoughts. And I must apologize straight off. A, I do not have a PowerPoint. So nothing to entertain you with by way of images. Um, I also am going to speak the shortest of four of us. And I think that's kind of all right, given that you're, I'm the last speaker and you're all probably getting tired. So here goes. Today is Gurpuram. Does anyone know what is Gurpuram? Right. It's the 553rd birth anniversary of Guru Nanak. Do you know who's Guru Nanak? No, Guru Nanak is the founder of the Sikh faith. I hope you do know who are Sikhs. <laughs> yeah? yeah? Okay. So Guru Nanak was born on the full moon of the month of Karthik, 1469. So today is his birthday with Sikhs all over the world are celebrating. Two centuries before him, Baba Farid. Do you know who's Baba Farid? A Sufi saint who was born in Multan, which is now Pakistan, whose verses are repeated on the streets in India and Pakistan by rickshawans. So popular he is you know, in terms of what he said. And, but of course, you've never heard of him. So Baba Farid, whose verses are also included in the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the holiest book of the six and is the first, the main copy of it rests in Amritsar in the Golden Temple. Baba Farid walked all the way from Multan to Jerusalem around 1200. That's the legend. And I <laughs> don't know if, you know, it, it says there, it's in the old city of Jerusalem, there is a place called Al Hind Sarai which is an Indian lodge where it is claimed that Baba Farid lived for many years in the early 13th century. I'd like to hold the memory of this connection with you, of restless travelers seeking and imparting wisdom across the globe. Here's another good story to remember. The Scott philosopher David Hume spent two years writing the treatise whilst living in a little French town called La Fleche, 160 miles southwest of Paris, where before him, the Jesuit priest, Ippolito Desideri, had written the first European account of Buddhism. He did not get papal permission to publish it. Desideri had traveled to Tibet and lived there and returned to Italy via France. Thus, Hume met Buddhist philosophy in France. Alison Gopnik relates the intricate story in fascinating detail, noting that La Flèche was also, and I quote her, startlingly global. In the 1700s, alumni and teachers from the Royal College 
could, could be found in Paraguay, Martinique, the Dominique Republic and Canada, and they were ubiquitous in India and China. In fact, the sleepy little town in France was one of the very few places in Europe where there were scholars who knew both about contemporary philosophy and Asian religion. So decolonizing our memory should begin with acknowledging our mixed intellectual heritage. This is not something that philosophy departments can be proud of. Very few of us make the effort or learn or teach our students about this mixed intellectual heritage. In materialist terms, as historians tell us, European industrialization is built with the sweat and blood of laborers from the colonies. There was destruction, there was loot, there was brutality. So for example, shipbuilding was destroyed in India or textile industry was decimated. And money bought from the colonies was used to buy political influence in the UK. People became prime ministers because of the money that they brought from India. There were also deaths of others in European wars. I'm not a historian, uh, but this is what I have picked up that soldiers were sent from India in world wars, hundreds of thousands to Mesopotamia, to Egypt, to France, to East Africa, to Gallipoli, to the Persian Gulf. And of these tens of thousands were killed Tens of thousands were wounded. Many went, went missing. And of the total, some, uh, according to some estimates, about 1.2 million soldiers were sent abroad and there were about 100,000 casualties. There were also Indian sepoys who fought in Mesopotamia against the Ottoman Empire. Many of them Indian Muslims taking up arms against their co-religionists, other Muslims in defense of the British empire. So you can imagine how complex a memory it will be of someone who is both a subject and a servant of the empire and how hard it is to celebrate and to be proud of one's valor, one's courage, and at the same time, feel regret for having been a contributor to the colonialist enterprise. It is a consciousness that is very difficult to hold together. But yet, this is what those who are others in Europe have to routinely do. So I speak from the point of view of the memory of the colonial experience of Indians in the diaspora and the subcontinent, where at this moment, ultra-nationalist right-wing thinking is on the rise. Anti-colonialism takes many forms and it is important to sift the ones that will open the door to justice from the ones that will primarily show up right-wing populism. This is my worry. The moment we talk about anti-colonialism, we open the door to a certain kind of jingoism unless we are very, very careful to defend what needs defending, we risk a lot of further damage being done. So in the UK, memorializing 
of Indian soldiers of World Wars One and Two is demanded. And it's mainly, I would say, the descendants of the six segments of the contributing soldiers. So in Brighton, there is a Chhatri War Memorial to soldiers who died in hospital and were cremated there. And this was constructed in 1921. Uh, during the First World War, injured Indian soldiers were hospitalized in the dome in Brighton. And Hindus or Sikhs who died there were cremated in the, on the downs. And the Chhatri is uh, construction which at that cremation site. Very recently, in 1921, the community in Wolverhampton raised 100,000 pounds with an additional 35,000 pounds city council contribution to build a war memorial to the 21 Sikh soldiers who fought in the Battle of Sara Green on 12th of September, 1897. So these 21, had died defending the British army post from 10,000 Afghan tribesmen. Now, I'm not going to say more about the timing of it, but I think it should ring a bell. Why now? It's a complicated memory, of course, as I already said, of dying in the war service of the colonizer. But what of those who died of famines created by the policies of the same colonial administration? Should there not be memorials to them? Hundreds and thousands of people died in famines and people can squarely point out things that Winston Churchill did or didn't do, which led to them. I want to also mention memorial built by the British in Koregaon, Maharashtra, India, to 8,800 soldiers, including 500 Mahars, of whom 22 died defeating a very strong army of 28,000 of the Peshwa Bajirao II in 1818. In 1927, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, an alumnus of LSC, his portrait is in this building as you enter, himself a Mahar, visited the memorial and obelisk. And every year since then, Dalits meet at Bhima Koregaon to celebrate the defeat of the upper caste rulers, albeit by the army of the East India Company in which Mahar was soldiers. A hundred years later, caste violence took place at the site on 1st January, 2018. And it was blamed on Dalits. In a sweeping action, several human rights activists, academics, poets were arrested under the Draconian Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. Commentators called the arrest and the incarceration of these human rights defenders a sign of fascism. Ironically, one of those implicated in the violence is Anil Teltumple, grandson-in-law of Ambedkar who has argued that it is misleading to portray the Battle of Bhima Korikao as the Battle of Mahars against their caste oppression uh, by Brahminic Peshwas. Anand has received criticism from Dalit activists too. So binarism, you're either with us or against us, narrows the space for critical discussion. Any criticism of colonialism will have to be extremely nuanced. So here too, Europe needs to be remembered. Aryanism in Europe borrowed from Aryan India to formulate supremacist German thinking. As Dorothy M. Figuera explains in her book, Aryans, Jews, Brahmins, 
theorizing authority through myths of identity. In her book, she also details at length how Nietzsche relies extensively on the tropes of caste, Brahmin, and Jandal to elaborate his philosophy. Yet today, the Hindu supremacist ideologues look to Israel for models of suppressing dissent. Uh, James mentioned never again. Never again must mean never again anywhere. The misuse of the law, the suspicion of critical thinking, the amnesia about mutual intellectual debts needs to be called out everywhere. So how must we remember? I don't want to end on a bad note. So what really can we do? How must we remember? Many have demanded that A-level history must include accounts of colonialism that show its avarice and brutality in full detail. It has also been suggested that there should be a museum of the empire, not just war museums, where we understand the, and, uh, the detail of what happened where and who really uh, uh, bore the burden of, of, of colonialism the most. There are people who say not reparation, but atonement. But I think we should think of ways of reparation. And this might seem a little bit outlandish, but I, I dare to suggest that I think proceeds of exhibitions of all of the loot that is there in museums around the world, many in Europe, that profits from these tickets sold for to these exhibitions must go to countries from where their exhibits were stolen. That can be easily done. Uh, people make all kinds of logistical objections to objects being moved. And maybe some sacred objects must be moved back, but there are many others which maybe needn't move back. They can stay where they are because they are housed in these magnificent buildings, protected under you know, proper surveillance and with very orderly ways of uh, viewing and exhibiting and bringing in schools. All of that can continue, but the money that is made out of this must, I think, be sent back to the places from where these goods come. And perhaps it can be used to support arts and crafts, to give sustenance to traditional artisans whose ancestors were ruined by colonialism. Whole rafts of people, generations of artists were ruined when the British, for example, went in India and decimated the textile industry. So that's one I would say. The second, I would say, this is in the context of statues, which we have been discussing. So why, I, I want to know why have statues of people? Why do we need statues of people? So for example, there is a statue of Robert Clive in Shrewsbury, which came under scrutiny last year, and there were plans to install a plaque mentioning his controversial history. He was clearly a corrupt politician at home and a plunderer abroad. Still, his political power benefited the people of Shropshire in his times, so their descendants voted to keep his memory alive. Even though his direct descendant wanted the statue to be removed from the center of the town. So my suggestion is we should really be naming because there'll be other occasions of memorializing. So we should be naming buildings by the names perhaps of trees and fauna and flora animals and birds, because all are innocent. Why give names of always fallible humans? I really think we should try and get rid of that. 
no building should be named after names of people and no statues should be built of people. That would be my suggestion. There has always been a long-standing demand for an apology for the massacre of the 13th of April, 1919 in Jallianwala where innocent women, men and children gathered to celebrate Besaki, which is a spring festival and the inaugural day of the Khalsa, that is the Sikh faith. They were killed on the orders of Colonel Dyer. Now, Prime Minister James Cameron and Theresa May have merely shared their view that it's a shameful scar, but not issued an apology on behalf of the Crown. Now, whether our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sonak, will atone for the sins of Jallianwala Bagh massacre on the 104th anniversary of the attack, which is next year on the 13th of April, 2023, remains to be seen. He's a British Prime Minister. Remember that Rabindranath Tagore, the first Asian Nobel laureate for literature, returned his British knighthood in protest against this massacre and the British response to it. So following on from this, my last suggestion, which I made at the British Sociological Association some years ago, is that honors such as MBE, OBE, et cetera, which hail the empire should be scrapped. This is not how we must remember. Exemplary contributions must be celebrated, but in the name of the empire? Now, they can be named in non-monarchical monarchical and non-imperial terms. Let's get imaginative. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mina. As we begin to move on, I think there was a sort of paradoxical relation uh, in Mina's talk too. Paris had given us periphery and origin, James, post-colonial and European, Mina, post-colonial and ultra-nationalist and right-wing, a kind of awful return into India of what had been borrowed by supremacist Europeans in the Aryan supremacist ideology, borrowed from Hindu India and caste. Unfortunately, our time is uh, now up and so it just remains for us to thank our panelists tonight uh, paris james and mina thank you and thank you all for coming thank you for listening you can subscribe to the lse events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next we hope you join us at another lse event soon